This is Famous and Gravy, a podcast about quality of life as we see it, one dead celebrity at a time. You can also play our mobile quiz app at deadorliveapp.com. This person died in 2016, age 74. He had an agile mind, a buoyant personality, and a brash self-confidence. Slim Pickens. <laughs> Great guess. I love Slim Pickens, but no, not Slim Pickens. He was described as a shapeshifter, a public figure who kept reinventing his persona. Yeah, that didn't narrow it down much either. <laughs> not an actor, not a singer, could be an athlete, that could be anybody. His personal life was paradoxical. He belonged to a sect that emphasized strong families, a subject on which he lectured, yet he had dalliances as casual as autograph sessions. He was politically and socially idiosyncratic as well. I have no idea, and you said it was gonna get easier. It's not getting easier. <laughs> he graduated 376th in a high school class of 391. He was never taught to read properly. Years later, he confided that he had never read a book, including the ones on which he collaborated. Man, I am terrible. None of these have helped. He had Parkinson's disease for more than 30 years. Oh, um, 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 was it Muhammad Ali? Today's dead celebrity is Muhammad Ali. Ah, come on! Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. My name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we choose a celebrity who died in the last 10 years and review their quality of life. We go through a series of categories to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Muhammad Ali died 2016, age 74. I have a question. Okay. Do you think this is the biggest celebrity we've done so far? I would have thought Nelson Mandela or Neil Armstrong. But there's a case to be made that yes. It there's could a case be. To it be. is definitely yes. debatable. Yes. In terms of name recognition globally. In terms of transcendence, importance, history books, like as well as pop culture, uh, as well as like significance. Yeah. It's a real contender. This is a big one. This is a big one. That's a, it's a lot at stake here. Let's go. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Muhammad Ali, the three-time world heavyweight boxing champion who helped define his turbulent times as the most charismatic and controversial sports figure of the 20th century, died on Friday in a Phoenix-area hospital. He was 74. Yeah, a lot of good words there and sort of defining uh, turbulent times. yeah. I guess the first thing I noticed is Muhammad Ali. There was no ode to his birth name. To Cassius Clay? Yes. Yeah. That's an honoring of him in a way, I think. 
how important it was that he was known as Muhammad Ali and not Cassius Clay. Yeah, because um, that, that was actually an issue, right? It did really rub him with oh, yeah. media and opponents. This is going to come Cassius. up. Yeah, this is going to okay. come up later. Charismatic and controversial. I actually stumbled a little bit on the controversial thing because certainly he was controversial at the peak of his fame throughout the 60s. 2016. That's the that one thing that's so interesting about him is that he is a controversial figure when he's an active boxer and when he's a spokesperson for all kinds of issues, whether it's Vietnam or civil rights. Yet, as time goes on, He's universally revered. Yeah, the controversy seems to be erased from the public consciousness. Right. And I'll tell you the other big thing that's not in here, the Parkinson's disease. Like the second half of his life, again, we're going to get more into this as well, but a man who was known for being such an eloquent speaker and such a passionate, charismatic figure who lost those communicative abilities as time went on because of a degenerative disease— Like they needed to contrast the charismatic and controversial with the debilitating disease that took him. Do you think that they should have said anything about his life after boxing? Because they don't. I think so, because this is 2016. This is exactly 20 years after the Olympic torch lighting, when basically the whole world saw what condition he was in. Right. And yeah, I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of it. In the first line. And I don't think it's much more than a few words. And I think he is the reason that we even know about the deteriorous effects of Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Other than Michael J. Fox. You're right. I mean, you could have gotten that as a clause in here. Died from complications of Parkinson's disease at a Phoenix area hospital. Sure. Everything else I really like, though. They got three-time heavyweight boxing champion. I love that. Which is good, yeah. Here's what uh, something else I like. The most, like it's superlative, the most charismatic and controversial sports figure of the 20th century. You have to have superlatives when talking about Muhammad Ali. When talking about Muhammad Ali, I remember our Maurice Sindak conversation. Yes. Where you were like, who the hell are you to call this the most important children's artist? And I do not have that gripe here because they're pairing charisma, controversy, and sports figure. I think he wins hands down, and there's not going to be any argument about using a superlative here. Yep. I think I have my score. Okay. Do you? Yeah. What do you got? I'm going to go an eight. God damn it. That's what I'm going to go. So are you docking the two points because of the Parkinson's thing? I agree with you on on controversy. It didn't occur to me on first listen. Mm -hmm. And I think an acknowledgement of the disease. Yeah, I agree. I also, and we didn't talk maybe enough about this, but defined his turbulent times. That's a great phrase. Yeah, because I think there's a lot to that. Yes. I mean, we just said something before we turned the microphones on. We're like, I just learned so much about the 60s and 70s again. Oh, my God, yes. It is often the case that you and I choose a dead celebrity for Famous and Gravy, and I'm like, I hope this person proves to be interesting. When we chose Muhammad Ali, I'm like, I hope, you know, his story lives up to the expectations that I have for learning and doing a deep dive. And holy cow, does it ever. Fascinating. Like, I understand why he is a figure in history in a way that transcends sports. The champion of the whole world can whoop every man in Russia, every man in America, every man in China, every man in Japan, every man in Europe, every man in America. The champion of the whole world. That sound big then. So I kept working until I did it. I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> You're not as dumb as you look. Category two, five things I love about you. 
Here, Amit and I work together to come up with five reasons why we love this person, why we want to be talking about them in the first place. I started to get into this a second ago. I wrote Ahead of the Curve slash Trailblazer slash Pioneer, but it's really culture maker. I mean, actually, really the phrase here is defined his times, like defined these turbulent times. Um, and I bulleted this out. So this is this is a big catch-all okay. thing I love about uh, Muhammad Ali, right? But first of all, trash talking. I'm sure it existed prior to Muhammad Ali, but I feel like he is like the first modern trash talker. You know, just the way he is, I don't know, baiting his opponents and like, you know, out there just like in front of the cameras being nasty. Yep. What do you think Liston would be today if it wasn't for you? If it wasn't for me, Sonny Liston would be just a dead heavyweight champion trying to find a suitable opponent and then they'll draw about five or 6,000 people. I'm the resurrected, the savior of the whole game. That's Every day I'm in the newspapers, you get tired of reading about me. How about all magazines, yeah. everything. Oh, I'm a big man. How about this villain role? Yeah, Liston was a villain and didn't nobody like Liston. Liston was a thug. Liston was a gangster. Everybody wants to see Liston beat. And now all of a sudden, Liston is the favorite. I guess That's the way I like it. That makes me rumble. That's I what we're going to do. We're going to rumble. Okay. Civil rights leader. This I did not know. I kind of sort of a little bit knew that he might have met Malcolm X. I didn't realize he was mentored by Malcolm X and that he and Martin Luther King had like a, a really very close relationship. A very close relationship. I mean, he is not some peripheral figure in the 1960s civil rights movement. He's right in the thick of it. Yes. You know, as an ambassador for the Nation of Islam in, in so many ways. Way ahead of the curve with pointing out the injustices of Vietnam. I mean, he was a conscientious objector before that was fashionable and before draft dodging was even a little well, when, bit— open. When it was really unfashionable, it was considered extremely unpatriotic Jesus, yeah, and to, he's gonna to, go to question jail. the war effort. Totally. So he's ahead of the curve there. This is probably a separate thing. We're going to talk more about it, but there is an argument to be made that he pioneered modern hip-hop. I'm sure we're going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, I know we're going to talk about But, like, ahead of the curve there, in terms of sort of like a lyrical rhythm style of speaking— I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. George can't hit what his hands can't see. Now you see me, now you don't. He think he will, but I know he won't. They tell me George is good, but I'm twice as nice. And I'm going to stick to his butt like white or rice. That's right. And then just like confident black man full of bravado, fearlessness, and willing to say what's on his mind, it just feels so ahead of the curve. So defined his turbulent times, I think actually really sums it up maybe even better than any of these things. Very much so. I mean, you can learn pretty much everything about the 1960s and 70s civil rights movement as it pertains to black people just through the lens of Muhammad Ali. Totally. Because he crossed every major part of it and every major character went through it, went through him at some point or he went through them at some point. Well, that's what I got for my number one. Okay. Uh, do you want to take number two? Yeah. I'm going to say manifested greatness. Mm. So the story about how he got interested in boxing, I think he was 12 years old yeah. with his brother. They had a bicycle. They went into someplace in downtown Louisville. Right. They came out and their bicycle was missing. So he goes around either looking for his bicycle or looking for a cop. And someone told him there's a policeman in the basement of this building. So he goes down there. The policeman is actually running a boxing gym. And there's these kids, like young kids and teenagers, boxing, both white kids and black kids. And he said he saw black kids being allowed to punch white kids was one of the things yeah. that inspired him. 
But he then decided he wanted to become a boxer. So the same cop who was a boxing trainer said he is just ordinary. Yeah. He did not go in there turning heads. If you remember when we talked about Diego Maradona, like they gave him a soccer ball when he was three, and you can picture it just like you see the footage of Tiger Woods right now. Right. And they are like, this person is destined for greatness. Yeah. Muhammad Ali was not. He started out ordinary, and he manifested greatness. He just said, I'm going to be the greatest. And he worked at it, and I mean, the, the man had an ability to basically say things that came true later. So in terms of a thing you love about it, do you like that it speaks to free will in terms of desirability, that if you believe strongly enough in yourself and your abilities and you're confident and you put in the hard work, you can achieve greatness, that it's not all just, you know, innate aptitudes or whatever? Correct. And that also manifestation can exist. The universe can also work to align for you. It's not all genetic skill. Yeah. That's a really good one. Should I take number three? Yeah. Okay. His physique... He's a stud, man. Like, this is an incredible body. His ability to absorb punches as well as, like, I don't know, the way he walks, his swagger, you oh, know? Oh, yes. I mean, this guy is just a complete stud. And extremely handsome. Extremely handsome. Despite being a boxer, which you think, you know, you should have a mangled face, but it always just, like, reshaped. Why is it, do you think, that you draw the crowds uh, of all the sportsmen in the world? Mainly personality's got a lot to do with it. Uh, very few boxers can get on this show and match wits with wise men like yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, very few fighters, if you take the camera on close up, you see my nose and my face. I'm not ugly like most fighters. They have noses like that and their ears are like that. <laughs> How you feel, champ? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm a pretty fighter. Every time he was on camera, your eyes are just drawn to him. Yeah, and the body language, which you also hinted at. Yes. He's also, you know, winks in a, in a really knowing way. I mean, he's got some subtleties of facial expression in his younger years that all add into the charisma and the physicality of the man. I think what you're saying is that the combination of the way he trained and the way he carried himself, plus those genetics, just combined into this miracle. Yes. All right. Yeah. Number four, you take it. I'm going to go bad with money in a good way. <laughs> I like it. All right. So, and this is just the sometimes just stupid acts of generosity. He was also very early on in being an entourage type of guy. Yeah. You know, he had his entourages, not just the trainers and the doctors, that he took around and he would take up whole floors of hotels for fights and things like that. Yeah. That's not the bad part of money that I'm praising. Yeah. I'm praising the just giving away Rolex watches. He's spreading around. Luxurious things. Yeah. And he would wear a Rolex watch, and sometimes just a stranger would compliment on it, and he'd just give it to him. Yeah, here, here you take it. Yeah, there was a story that was told, I think, in the Ken Burns documentary that they were training in a gym, and this guy came in who had no legs. He may have been a vet or something, but he was known around the block as basically being like a drunkard. Yeah. And he came in, and he's like, you guys got cash for me? And they, like everyone else in the gym, had normally always just discarded him. And Muhammad Ali, just gave him a wad of like thousands of dollars of cash. And they're like, why did you do that? He's just going to go spend it on booze. Muhammad Ali was just like, well, we got legs, man. It's that simple. We got legs. Yeah. So in terms of a thing you love about it, though, I mean, do you wish you had that attitude with money? Absolutely, to some extent. Yeah. Right? To be blindly generous, there's one thing to be cautiously generous. Yeah. To be blindly generous, very, very few people can have that gift 
But you also just, everybody on the other side always has a story. And you have no idea what degree of misfortune lay behind them. Mm. So if you just give every time you're asked, who knows how many lives you are actually changing and turning around as the days go on. That's a pretty good segue into number five. This is a little bit of Gary Shandling here. I wrote Lifelong Commitment to Spirituality. Yeah. We should talk about it. Lifelong, I interesting. Let me just lay out the case. So before this conversation, I had my dad over for breakfast the other morning, and I told him, Ahmet and I are going to be talking about Muhammad Ali. So I asked him about Muhammad Ali and what his take was, because they're basically contemporaries. Yeah. And what my dad said was when he was boxing, I could never tell if it was authentic, if it was real. His conversion to Islam and his, or whether he w- it was just meant to draw and capture attention. I think you could spin the story a few different ways in terms of Muhammad Ali's conversion to Islam in the early 60s. Here's how I see it, and I wonder if you see it the same way. I think he found a community of empowerment and a place where he felt like he belonged. And the religious element of that was almost secondary to the feeling of belonging in the nation of Islam. Correct. I also do think, though, that as his life goes on, his commitment to Islam enriches. He never converts back. And I do think that as he ages and as he faces Parkinson's, it looks to me like his spirituality and his religion are more and more important. And so I do see a lifelong commitment, even if it's kind of a question in my mind how deep that commitment was when he's in his early 20s. Yeah, the the origins were exactly as you said. It was just belonging because the Nation of Islam was just blackness. It was this community that says we only shop at black-owned places. We only have black members. We do everything just for blacks, by blacks, and with blacks. It was a separatist movement, which I don't think I quite understood that before doing the research on this episode. Yeah, the Nation of Islam was saying, you know, a separate state. Muhammad has taught us, since we see the government itself is still incapable of bringing about integration, we reject it. It takes too long, and you don't have that much time left. And that's what attracted Muhammad Ali. There was nothing about Allah or the Quran that attracted him initially, right? but he did take it seriously. It took him a while to learn it. I mean, this, this man could barely even read, right? but he did follow it closely for his lifetime. And he did Prayed five times a day. He did the pilgrimages to Mecca, to Mecca yeah. and all of that later in his life. Yeah. And after 9-11 became an ambassador to some extent for, I mean, he was like the go-to spokesperson for Muslim Americans. Here's, I guess, the other reason I bring this up, because I know this is where this conversation's going. I think that as his Parkinson's worsens, there's a real question as to what's going on inside his mind. Sure. Because his ability to communicate what's going on, you know, becomes less and less over time. So part of me wanted to call out his commitment to his faith because I want to believe that that's where he goes in his mind as his body begins to fail him. And without that, perhaps he wouldn't have lasted as long because it's all internal after a certain point. That's right. I think the only thing is the wording. 
of lifelong commitment to spirituality. Okay. I think it's the role that spirituality played in the transformation of his life. I'm on board with that. I think that's a better framing of it. I think it's spirituality as a tool throughout different stages of life. Yeah, I can sign off on that. Okay. All right, we got to recap. Thing number one, I said, ahead of the curve, I said, culture maker defining the turbulent times. Uh, captures As the New York Times said. Number two, I said manifested greatness. Number three, uh, physique, which includes the charisma and the facial features. Number four, you said? Blind generosity. Blind Ro- Rolexes and, wad- and wads of cash. I think you said bad with money in a good way, which I liked that. Okay, bad. <laughs> and number five? Role of spirituality throughout his life. All right, let's move on. Category three, Malkovich Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people take a portal into John Malkovich's mind where they can have a front row seat to his experiences. Okay. Are you familiar with the Cleveland Summit, 1967? I am. Okay. This is my Malkovich moment. Let me set this up, see if I got it right. So there's a famous photograph of Muhammad Ali with Jim Brown, the football player, arguably the greatest football player of all time. Some people put him on that list. Bill Russell, maybe the greatest basketball player of all time, uh, and also Lou Alcindor at the time, later Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The four of them sitting at a press conference, and this is from his biographer. All these black athletes in the late 60s were there to convince Muhammad Ali to accept a kind of compromise around being drafted for Vietnam. He had said, I'm a conscientious objector, and that they were going to throw him in jail. And so he's fighting that starting around 1967. And they're trying to convince him to say yes and compromise so he can do exhibition games. And then he can also be compensated from his boxing matches. Everybody's trying to get Muhammad Ali to start boxing again. It has been said that I have two alternatives. Either go to jail or go to the army. But I would like to say that there is another alternative. That alternative is justice. If justice prevails, I will neither go to the army nor will I go to jail. And at the end of the Cleveland Summit, they come out to a press conference where all these athletes say, We stand with Muhammad Ali. We stand with Muhammad Ali. He worked the crowd and more or less convinced everybody to be in solidarity with his conscientious objector status. I think it's one thing to say, I'm willing to go to jail. I do not believe in this war. But then to win over the support from other sports figures, I wonder what it feels like to win everybody over and to be like, I'm not alone here. Because it's got to feel lonely to fight the man. It's more than persuasion. Yeah. This is leading by example, right? And winning people over that way. Yes. I see that picture, and I see brothers in arms, essentially, to borrow a war term. Yeah. These people will stand beside me. They are also risking their careers. Muhammad Ali used the words, I will die, rather than go to this war. I saw a togetherness against a system much bigger than you. Just to complete the story, for those who don't know, Muhammad Ali fights the draft board and fights going to war and eventually wins. The case eventually goes to the Supreme Court. So he did not box from 1967 to, I think, 1971. It was like three and a half years. And a lot of people say those were his prime years. That when he comes back after this in 71, it's clear he's lost a step. Yeah, and you know what else was happening in those four years is he also knew before that Supreme Court ruling that he would have to go to jail for five years. They thought they would weaken me and put fear in me by threatening me to go to jail and taking my earning power 
and I'm getting stronger, and this shakes up a lot of people to see that I'm this strong. It also makes other so-called Negroes strong who are facing the same problems, and in this way, I think I can do for more for my people. They've never had a big black man that just stood up and identified with the struggle of his people a thousand percent. So that's my Malkovich moment. That's a good one. So I have just like the kind of closing chapter to that. So in 1967 to 71, he's essentially one of the most hated men in America because he's considered unpatriotic. As time went on and the Vietnam War became more and more unpopular, Muhammad Ali gets a Supreme Court overturning. And then in 1974, he competes in the Rumble in the Jungle against George Foreman, where he becomes a heavyweight champion for the second time, I believe. Correct. So following that, in his sort of victory tour throughout Africa first, because that's where the fight was held, and then President Ford, the successor to Richard Nixon, brings him in to the White House to commend him and give him a medal. Yeah. So a mere seven years has passed from basically being one of the biggest figureheads in opposition to the United States government to being in the White House seven years later. The photograph I remember seeing with him and Gerald Ford is like they're both laughing. They're laughing. They are ear-to-ear smiling. Yeah. That and is What a turn of events, right? Yeah, and, a, and But history turned in his direction. History like he stayed in the same place. Which is exactly my Malkovich, that history had turned in his direction because he stood his ground. Wow. It's a great Malkovich. Yours too. Let me ask this question. This feels like the right place for it. At what point does he become more than a sports figure? At what point does he become a historical figure? At some point, this becomes about more than sports. I guess it's in opposition to Vietnam that that happens. And maybe it is in this moment that you're pointing to, where he becomes bigger than boxing. I think it's closer to your moment when he refused the draft. It's funny, you know, I'm not that much of a boxing fan, but... It's interesting how we have these movies about boxers, you know, whether it's Raging Bull or Rocky. There is something about the American boxer that is just a real iconic figure. And Muhammad Ali's real-life story is as good as any of those movies. Oh, without a doubt. Okay, let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Michael, I want to talk to you about a void in my life. Uh, this is very famous in gravy. What's missing? It's in my liquor cabinet, Michael. I have lots of great whiskeys, things that I stand behind, very flavorful ones. Yeah. I don't have that in gin. Um, I have good gins. Yeah. I have nice labels, but they all sort of taste the same. There's not the, oh my God, gin. I have great news for you. You have great news for me. I have great news for you. Have you heard about Linden Leaf, Jen? Linden Leaf products? I have not, but I think I know how to spell it. I'm pretty certain it's L-I-N-D-E-N. Correct. Linden Leaf is the first spirits company to handcraft their ultra premium products at the molecular level. Let me say that again. At the molecular level. Fine-tuning flavors to create perfectly harmonious and exceptionally balanced spirits. So perhaps if I put this product in my liquor cabinet, I would have a flavorful aromatic gin that I can stand behind, earn credibility with all the guests and dignitaries that come to my apartment as I offer them a cocktail. You know who else you can serve? Famous and gravy listeners. You want to tell them about this? Everyone can find Linden Leaf products at shoplindenleaf.com, but only Famous and Gravy listeners can receive 20% off their first order using promo code FAMOUS20. That's FAMOUS20. Wow. Yeah, that is a hell of a deal for an ultra premium product. That's incredible. Famous and Gravy listeners, you've got to try this. Linden Leaf 88 Gin, a perfectly balanced flavor experience crafted and tuned at the molecular level. Tennis player Billie Jean King. Oh, not alive. The rules are simple. She is still with us as of this recording. Isn't that great? It's a couple years ago. Here we go. Ralph Nader. That's a hard one. Dead or alive? Uh, Ralph Nader is alive. Correct. Ralph Nader is 88 years old and still going. Eats a plant-based diet. That's what I went with. I was like, there's only one thing. (laughs) He had to do it. Probably a vegan. Based on everything I know about the people who voted for him, he's a vegan. Test your knowledge. Deadoraliveapp.com Category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? Okay, there's a lot here. I'm going to just try and get through it in terms of good housekeeping, and then let's just get into it. Um, Okay, so four marriages, nine kids, seven daughters, two sons. First marriage is in 1964. He's 22 at the time. No kids came out of that. Divorced in 1966. She wouldn't convert. Her name was Sonji Roy. His brother said that she was his one true love, but there was some conflict between her and the Nation of Islam. Wife number two, Belinda Boyd, in 1967. He's 25. She later changed her name to Khalila. Four children, three girls, and Muhammad Ali Jr. Also, I wrote 
to be because at age 32 in 1974, Muhammad Ali began an extramarital affair with Wanda Bolton, who later changed her name to Aisha, and they're married in an Islamic ceremony that was not legally recognized, and it sort of looks like polygamy. Uh, he was not divorced from Kalila. They had a daughter, and then in 1972, he had another daughter out of wedlock. I couldn't figure out exactly when he and Belinda got divorced. I think it's 1976. 1977, he marries Veronica Porsche. He's 35. They have two kids. I was not 100% clear on when they got divorced, but she was very clear by this point that infidelity was common and that he was having a lot of one-night stands, and she said something to the effect of she could tell these women didn't mean anything to him. But at this point, he is very, very promiscuous lifestyle. Yes, and I thought there was even an overlap that he wasn't divorced when he married Veronica. I couldn't follow all of this. That may be right. In 1986, he marries Lonnie Williams. He's 44 at this point. He's also exhibiting signs of Parkinson's by now. That's pretty clear. She was very young when they met, and he was a young adult, so there's quite a big age gap. But she becomes his caretaker in many ways, and they stay married until his death. They had one adopted son. And she also becomes something of a business manager. She gets his financial affairs in order for the remainder of his life. Overall, mixed relationship with the kids. Some of them loved him. Some of them didn't. They all said he wasn't around much, but when he was, he was a lot of fun. What to make of this, Ahmed? I don't even know how much I want to talk about this. Well, I think it's just worth noting. He seems like he was a terrible husband to wife two, three, and four. He was addicted to the road. He loved the adoration of the world. And it sounds like many, many extramarital affairs. Yeah, he's having a lot of sex. I mean, the guy also did not drink or smoke or do any kind of drugs or anything. I mean, this is, to the extent that he's after short-term dopamine hits, this is where he's getting them. But he's doing it by cheating and lying. Yeah, he is. What's the, the central part of your training? Is it running? Is it sparring? Or Central part is dodging the nightclubs and the parties and the girls. You want the truth? And being in the bed by yourself at 9 o'clock at night. Dodging ladies is the main thing. Especially when you're pretty like me. And I feel like he's also such a transcendent figure that a lot of people are making excuses for him as if this is all okay and this is what comes with next-level fame and all the trials and tribulations he's been through. Also, it should be said, goes against a lot of the religious tenets that he had, you know, was espousing. So that's what I wanted to ask you. How do you couple this information with your spirituality remarks? Uh, that nobody's perfect, I guess. No, that's, okay. you use, can use that a couple of times. I don't mean to say, man, eh, nobody's perfect. I mean to say he's really, really not perfect when it comes to interpersonal relationships and treating women with equality and being a good husband and being a good father. He gets low scores in the family department. I mean, he's bad. Yeah, terrible. It's inexcusable. Very obvious that he was promiscuous. There, I read several things that even called him a sex addict. But what I'm wondering is this, is that basically he has these sham marriages. He's got dozens of affairs. Wait a, sec, wait a sec. I don't know that I'd go sham marriages. Okay, he's got these marriages rife well, with infidelity. Hang, hang, yeah, but let's dig into this for a second because, I, you know, you see some of his exes being interviewed in the Ken Burns documentary, yes. and I still perceive love and intimacy and adoration in a way. This has come up before on the show. You and I have a particular point of view when it comes to infidelity and what it means and why it's significant. And I do think that it is hurtful and harmful 
to a marriage to be cheating around the way he was. At the same time, I wouldn't call it a sham marriage. They also seemed like they weren't that secretive. All these affairs yeah, I, I and one think night they're stands embarrassing. I think they're embarrassing for his wives, absolutely. I just don't know what to say here other than, like, this gets to regrets, which comes up later. I mean, he is public about, I was not a good man when it came to how I participated in the marriage and in the family. So I think there is a misalignment of his stated ideals and his behavior. No question about it. And it's at its worst, I think, throughout the 1970s, late 60s and 70s. Yeah. It bums me out. Bums you it's out. not surprising, it, though. It right? fits with the persona. Yes. But it doesn't make sense with his spirituality. It's not Do a you, It makes me. sense to you? It does. Because he's not punished for them in a way. If there's not accountability for how this is hurting people, he's getting away with it in a way. You know, it's not what I want from my marriage, but I understand how he sees this as normal for him because the thing is like he had awareness that he's an extraordinary man and i think that if you are telling yourself a story about how extraordinary you are then it's just no question that you begin to think the rules don't apply to me and whatever expectations everybody else has for marriage doesn't apply here and that's a short-term rationalization but it's not complicated i get it yeah, I think it's just my insecurities coming out that, like, if this is happening, will I be on the other end of that ever? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one thing that makes a marriage successful is some level of mutual respect and equality. And I don't see that here, but it's also not surprising that I don't see that here. And if what we're after is desirability, then having counterexamples is just as useful as having, you know, the Ruth Bader Ginsburgs of the world. Yeah, um, true. Who have, like, great marriages for decades on end. Right? You want to see what failure looks like and why. And this is failure. This is failure in the home and family department. It hurt me. I had to find women in, locked in my closets and in my house. You guys yeah. already have kids, yes. and this is what you're going through. And this my is kids your life are in my time. house. And, and you see, right now, you still, but you still show him some sort of well, you know, respect and, and honor. I will always do that. You know why? He's just a not, person not, who yeah. had weaknesses. Yes. And yeah, I'd say 75% of that life was beautiful and 25 was not. But it was a challenge and it was something I had to learn from. Category five? Yes. Category five, net worth. God, there's just so much to talk about with this guy. All right, I saw 80 million. Is that's, that what you saw? Yeah. But that's a very complicated number because in terms of the things that you said, like he's good at being bad with money, he was doing a lot of fights, especially in the 70s, when he was just for the paycheck. He didn't handle his money well, and it wasn't really until his fourth marriage to Lonnie that his financial affairs kind of got in order. And this is after his third title when he's more or less retired. That's right. There's, there's just a lot of variability. He ran the, out. He kept running low. Kept, he kept running, running low, low. But also living in mansions and buying nice cars, and but then out of money again. So it glosses over a lot, but— Ultimately, $80 million, which means that whatever Lonnie was doing in those final years, uh, she had her shit together. He sold the rights to his name and his likeness yeah. for a massive sum that brought in at least $7 million in royalties for every year. And, and still may, I think, towards his family. And I think it's all licensing money. If he would have died sooner, he dies broke. Yeah, He would die a three-time heavyweight champion broke. Should we move on then? Yeah. 
Category six, Simpsons Saturday Night Live or Hall of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons as well as impersonations. Okay, Simpsons, there's at least five references. He never voiced himself, but there's actually a supercut of all the times Muhammad Ali is referenced on YouTube. Oh, show notes. Yeah. Okay. Saturday Night Live, the one that I remember, Eddie Murphy, it's kind of mean in retrospect because it has Joe Piscopo as like a Howard Cosell-like figure interviewing okay. Muhammad Ali when he's young and brash and sort of, you know, confident and like really loquacious, right? 32, the man's ready for a rocket chair. I guarantee the world. I'm going to shock the world, prove the world. I'm the greatest fighter of all time. Destroy this man. And I'm going to keep the heavyweight championship of the world for five years straight. Then I'm going to retire from the boxing game. Healthy, happy, rich, and pretty. I'm the greatest fighter of all times. That's this like old black and white clip. And then they zoom forward to the present and it's brain damaged Muhammad Ali. And he, in the middle of the interview, starts singing. I like his show. And my style, old McDonald had a farm. Well, there you have it. Ali, confused, career, over, brain cells, few. It's mean, but there's more impersonations. I saw one skit with Billy Crystal, of all people, impersonating him. And I saw at least one other with Garrett Morris from the original cast. Okay. Um, but he was never on Saturday Night Live that I could find. He does have a Hollywood star, and this is interesting. It's not on the ground. He didn't want people walking on his name. So it's actually on a wall. He got it in 2002. It's the wow. first time I've ever heard of that. I wonder if that's an Islam thing, because there's a big thing about feet, you know, that oh, you yeah. don't walk on things. You don't, yeah. you don't drop books on the ground. And That makes sense. Finally, he was on Arsenio Hall. Really? With Sugar Ray Leonard and Mike Tyson. All uh, three of them. All three of them. Oh, they just been a big couch, Arsenio had that Yes, day. although, I mean, he's much less expressive because of the Parkinson's at this point. Yeah. So that's it. There was no question he was hitting the trifecta on that's this. That's right. Okay. I have to throw in one bit of trivia. Do you remember the Different Strokes episode he was on? I only saw that he was on it. I never saw that. I do actually remember seeing it, but what I learned in the last few days, you know, he did all these rhymes when he was speaking, yeah. and he had a Different Strokes for Different Folks was actually accredited to him. What do you make of this claim that he originated hip-hop? Basically what they say is that the way that he spoke and the way that he rhymed words was essentially exactly how hip-hop was mimicked in the 70s when it was, quote, invented. Yeah. As well as the the sort of braggadocio that goes into hip-hop. Yeah. So I don't know that I agree with the word invented hip-hop. To me, I don't know if it's so much the speaking and the rhyming, it's the boasting. Yeah, totally. It's, 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 it's the first-person narrative of Yeah, and of trash hip-hop. talking too, right? Yes. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and they said, I mean, hip-hop was so politically motivated really after the 70s yeah. in a lot of the Public Enemy, Yeah, I think NWA, Chuck D even did like a documentary or something. Uh, about Ali. Yeah. Yeah, it was called like Ali Rap, I believe. Yeah. Essentially, yeah, a lot of that is part of Muhammad Ali being this black countercultural singular voice. There was also the album. You listened to some of this? Was it called I Am the Greatest, 1963? Yeah. Yeah. That's when he was Cassius Clay. And it's just basically a bunch of him just speaking, it sounds like, to a crowd and just talking shit about his opponents. You know, boxing is sort of like stand-up comedy in a way. It's like such a naked performance. It's so elemental and so simple in what it is. Get up there, throw punches. 
yeah. full stop. Well, no, I think that's fingers. why Muhammad Ali is so important and so adored because he threw punches with his mouth yeah. as well as with his Everything fist. about him is thrown Everything. It was the yeah. exact same. What, what was coming out of his body was with the same sort of depth, speed, and strength. Agility, power, yeah. That was coming out of his mouth. For his first reading, Mr. Clay will honor us with a recitation of his classic poem, I am the greatest. <laughs> I am the greatest <laughs> by Cassius Clay. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. This kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. Category seven, over under. In this category, we look at the generalized life expectancy for the year they were born to see if they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. So a life expectancy for a man born in 1942 was 71.4 years old. He lived to 74. But of course, the final decades of his life were suffering from Parkinson's. Yeah, because this is the second half of the question is grace. Yeah. And he is diagnosed with Parkinson's in the early 80s. That's right, but I think there is uncertainty because scientists are so reluctant to say anything with any kind of certainty about whether the beatings that he took in the ring contributed to this degenerative disease. Because Parkinson's, I did a little bit of a crash course on this. It's more like the cold than anything. Like the cold is not a single virus. Like it's a catch-all term for a variety of symptoms, right? Parkinson's is like that. There's not necessarily a single Parkinson's disease, but there is something that we can be diagnosed as Parkinson's. Common sense would sort of like suggest like, uh, there's a relationship here between getting hit in the head as often as you did and what looks like brain damage. I think people are reluctant to go that far because we can't really know. I think story-wise, it's kind of incredible that you have this man who is as we were talking about a minute ago, so singularly, like, powerful. Everything about him is throwing a punch. His body, his mouth, his mind. And then he loses all of that. It's an incredible sort of twist of fate. And the very possibility that they are what took it away from him. Right. I also think because Parkinson's removes his ability for expression— we really kind of don't know what's going on in that mind as time goes on. Yes. He becomes mysterious in terms of the inner life. Yes. In some ways, it looks terrifying and haunting, right? I don't want a disease like this. Nobody does. So the image that we all have, or that I especially have, is the 96 Olympics. Yeah. When he is lighting the flame and shaking. And by the way, I did read that shaking is as a result of the medication, not the disease itself. Yes. My grandfather had Parkinson's, and I do remember the shaking. Are you able to port over any lessons to what we see in the later decades of Muhammad Ali's life? It just looked awful. You know, he would hallucinate a lot. Is it is it a nightmare? It kind of looks like a nightmare. It kind of looks like a nightmare, but I don't think in my grandfather's case that he suffered as long. The last six years, he needed help all the time. You know, he would hallucinate, he would shake. It was bad. Yeah, especially compared to a guy who at one point looked like he was the most powerful man that ever lived. Well, again, we do not know the inner monologue. We don't know the level of peace you feel inside, but outwardly is horrifying. Yeah. 
Well, let's take a break. And then we'll get to the inner life. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Famous and Gravy listeners, there's a podcast I want to tell you about called Seen Out Loud. Right now, there is a national movement underway to reimagine the child welfare system. But changing the child welfare system is going to require a new approach built on open-mindedness, curiosity, and compassion. Seen Out Loud brings listeners stories and conversations that recognize child welfare transformation starts by seeing families for who they truly are. It's a powerful show, and I highly recommend it. Subscribe and follow Seen Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts. Category eight, the first of the introspective categories, man in the mirror. What did they think about their own reflection? Obviously loved it. Loved no, I mean, it. And even as he's older, he's looking back, look how pretty I was. Oh, I yeah. love the way he uses the word pretty, too. Yeah. Is that all we're looking at, though? Is the first half of his life, or are we— No, I think we have to look at the second, because he even had a direct quote not too long after diagnosis when he was on the Today Show, and he watched the tape, and he said something to the effect of, when I used to watch tapes of me, I'd see how pretty I am, and now I look, and I'm just an old man. Yeah. And he said this in his early 40s. Yeah. Let's go with loved it for now, and let's get into this a little bit more when we get into good dreams, bad dreams. Fair enough. Okay, because it's the same— answer for me in terms of the next category, outgoing message. How do we think he felt about the sound of his own voice on an answering machine? And would he have recorded his own voicemail? Yes and yes. As his condition worsens in age, I think he probably mourned the loss of his voice much more than the loss of his good looks. Yeah. He liked it maybe even more than boxing. Yeah. Like just his (laughs) ability to form words and to scream them, but them still be kind of hilarious and and cruel at the same time. The accent too is so good. It's so catfanging. I mean, listening to that album from 63, it really, like, I really enjoyed it. His charisma is coming out everywhere. Yes. Okay. Category 10. Regrets, public or private, what we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night. There's actually kind of a lot. We've talked about some of it. Turning his back on Malcolm X, I think, was the biggest one. Huge one. Huge one. So when Malcolm X comes back from his pilgrimage to Mecca, he sort of had a falling out with the prophet Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. Yes, and Malcolm X is also accusing Elijah Muhammad publicly of having affairs with his secretaries. Which is true. And Muhammad Ali was clear on regretting not sticking by his friend Malcolm X prior to his death. He was also publicly remorseful about his infidelities and his uh, womanizing. He also said, I don't regret any of the fights. This is where I have questions about the private regrets. Like, he was part of some nasty fights long past when he should have been, especially that match with Larry Holmes where he just gets the shit beat out of him. And at that point, like, he is done. He should have been retired. His trainers were telling him to retire four years before he did, and he keeps getting in the ring. Man, you got to wonder if he didn't regret some of that. He says he didn't. They don't want you to go on getting hurt in the ring. I never got hurt. It's strange. Oh, you did a very good actor. (laughs) Are you calling me a liar? No, no. 
the match that I watched, I think it was the third one with Joe Frazier, looks like the most brutal thing I've ever seen. Like, both of those guys leave the ring completely mangled. They go the distance. Ali wins in a uh, in a decision, but they they both just look miserable. Yeah, and I think Ali even said, we went into that ring as champs and we came out as old men. Yeah, that's right. I think that is the fight where he said that. And the thing is, like, Joe Frazier being his, like, number one rival. And there's also, this should be mentioned in Public Regrets, he was particularly nasty in his trash talking with Joe Frazier. And a lot of commentators I saw were really critical of Muhammad Ali and just how far he went, especially calling, among other things, Joe Frazier an Uncle Tom. And Ali said, I, I should not have said those things. Later, in 2002, I think he expresses regret around that. Yep. Joe Frazier never forgave him, though. Yeah, and there was uh, Sonny Lister, same thing. He used Sonny to call Liston, him a, yeah. he, Listin. He used to call him a gorilla. Yeah. An extremely pejorative word to be used against another black man, especially yeah. at the time. Exactly. And he regrets those. This came up in the quiz. Like, there were idiosyncrasies, I think was the term that was used, and paradoxes, and who he was and what he represented. And this is another one of them. Mm -hmm. Okay, category 11. Good dreams, bad dreams. This is not about personal perception, but rather does this person look haunted? Do they have a look in the eye that suggests turmoil, inner demons, unresolved trauma? I went bad for a couple of reasons. I don't see it as much when he's a young man. And then it's hard to know as he ages, but certainly as the Parkinson's is getting worse, the look in the eye does look haunted to me. I think that there's an inner struggle going on. Whether he found peace and serenity, I don't know. From the outside looking in, it looks like a nightmare. I did write down the word good. Wow. And this is going back to the manifestation of the man just seemed to have an ability to delude himself into having no boundaries and having no limits and actually believing he was the greatest in the world far before he was the greatest in the world. And whatever neurons were firing to give him that optimism, I think we're still letting him rest peacefully at night. I don't know enough about the scientific impact of Parkinson's, but I'm just going to play a little bit of wishful thinking in that the glory days still came into his dreams well after. I'm still going bad dreams overall. But I think that there's a case to be made. And even you kind of feel like the sense of fate, the destiny. Because at some point, he's feeling the wave of history carrying him through. I'll say this. When I am having bad dreams, which I sometimes have, and I wake up in the middle of the night, the place I'm trying to get to is one of surrender and telling myself it's all going to be okay and, like, I'm not in control of all these things. Yeah. So when I'm able to absorb and really internalize that message— I have good dreams. Yeah, I'd like to believe. Category 12, second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis? This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? This may be a question of what drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person, or another philosophy is that a particular kind of drug might allow access to a part of them that you're most curious about. I don't think he did any three of these. He didn't. I think he drank Coca-Cola. Yeah, that's okay. I think I'm probably going to go with alcohol, and I think this is like an unrealistic drink that we have together. This isn't a, you know, cheers, Muhammad, let's have a drink. This is a truth serum. I want to know how he's doing, really, as the Parkinson's gets worse. Who is inside there? Yeah. 
and how he's dealing with it day to day and how he copes with what looks like a tremendous amount of suffering. I'd want to have a drink and find out. Yeah, I landed on the same. Exactly as you said, I do think he's hilarious. And I think he could entertain me. I think he could crack me up. I also need the truth serum for that reason that you said. But what I'm most interested in is these conflicts that I brought up. The idea of you committing to the spiritual religious path and comparing that with the beating of other people for a living and the broken treatises of marriage, despite whether they knew or not. But I want to hear it because neither you or I could really come to terms with that after sitting here and researching it for a few weeks of what we think about that. So I think we've arrived. We're at the Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. You know who this one reminds me of? It's Neil Armstrong. Really? Really? In the life of extremes way, I mean, what boiled down to with Neil Armstrong is, do you want to lose a four-year-old child and travel to the moon or not? Mm -hmm. You know, there are some unbelievable extremes in this guy's life. Mm -hmm. He transcends so much. He is this historical figure. He is going to be remembered for, seems like forever. And there's very few athletes who ever arrive at that place. And then to be at the center of this, you know, transitional, transformational decade in, in American history. And like all that he symbolizes, I mean, he is a political figure in a way. He's a social figure. He's an entertainment figure, you know. And then to have this fate of all of these things taken away bit by bit, it's sort of exhausting to look at, you know. So we're talking about essentially two halves of his life, almost literally two halves. Yeah. He won the gold medal in uh, in 1960 so when he was 18, 18 years old. So yeah. let's talk about that as his rise. And then he gets what? Another 18 to 22 years of greatness on the world stage before everything starts melting? Yeah, but is this about math? It's having, and I think Muhammad Ali said something to this effect, is more good days than bad days. Yeah. Right? Maybe that's what it is, is it's about math. It's about more good days than bad days. And that's a hard argument to make if you're going to go ahead and just assume that the second half is mostly negative marks. Yeah. But I am not going to assume that because like I told you, I had some of that wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. This is me exposing uh, an insecurity, but the man was adored. And I think he goes into any room, down any road, into any arena, and he lights it up, and I think he gets chills every time. And I think that that continued well into the diagnosis. And what he lights up in people— from what they remember him saying or doing. And meaning. And I want that. And I'll run that risk. But I'm going to just place a wish that he still had it somewhere in there that the world loved him. And so I'm a yes. I want your life, Muhammad Ali. This life exhausts me a little bit. I don't see a whole lot of opportunity for peace until it's forced upon him. I don't know. Maybe that is a gift. 
I also do see with the infidelity and I don't know if you want to call it sex addiction or something, but a kind of crossing a line of how important you are, an ego run amok. I don't want to be the greatest at five things, but I want to be the greatest at one thing, I think. I don't even know what that is yet, you know, in a kind of city slickers way, one thing. But I also want greatness coupled with humility, which to me means knowing when to lead and when not to. He is a worthy hero more than I think maybe anybody else we've talked about on this show. I want to be celebrated. I want validation for greatness. But I don't want it so much that it goes to my head and that I betray my own values. I think I need to be a little bit more common. I'm so glad I got to get ready for this episode and learn all this stuff. And he is somebody who I'm going to tell my kids about. But I don't think I want this life on it. I'm going to go no because I got to give an answer. Yeah. But talk to me tomorrow. I might be a yes. All right. I think we're there. You ready? Not at all. Okay. But I'm going to do it. You are Muhammad Ali. You have died. You're going before the Unitarian Proxy of St. Peter at the Pearly Gates. You have an opportunity to make your pitch. The floor is yours. St. Peter, I got paid to stand up. I got paid to make sure I never fell down and that I made somebody else fall down. But other than my opponents, nobody else fell down. I lifted everyone else up. I brightened up a room. I brightened up a nation. I stood up not just in the ring. I stood up for what I believed in, and I never backed down. I taught the world to stand up for what you believe in. And I also told them that you can fight. You don't have to fight like I do. You don't have to fight with fists and throw gloves. You can fight with your mouth or you can fight by refusing to go. But this is a world of will. No one should ever take your will from you. That's what I left on this earth. Let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, please tell your friends about us. Help spread the word. Find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. And we also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, FamousAndGravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. Thanks for listening. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 